Well, good morning. It's so good to be with you, and welcome to those online. Just a reminder to those online that we will be having communion at the end of the message, so you may want to gather your elements now. I remember when I was a young intern in seminary, I looked up to especially the teacher of Peninsula Bible Church at that time, Ray Stedman, who had a worldwide teaching ministry. He had written a number of books, and I really looked up to him. And one day I was asked by him to uh, travel with him to Houston, where he was going to be teaching uh, four different churches, as well as teaching a conference. And I thought, wow, this is my opportunity. I'm going to soak in everything I can. And I remember getting on the plane, and I you know, mentally got out my notebook and was going to write down all these words of wisdom that were going to come out of his mouth, that were going to be life-changing for me. And one of the first things he said was, hey, do you like to play chess? And I said, "Uh, sure. So we played chess. And, you know, the whole time he was just more of a real person and interested in me. But I'm struck by that as I look back at that, how because he was so well-known, because he was famous, I had this idea that he was different than me. You see, in our world, we're so impressed with fame and status and gifts and power. You know, that's star power. And it's so natural for us as humans to to look somewhere, to, to try to find somebody that we can look up to that has that kind of star power. To be honest, I think it's basically because we were built to give that glory to God. But in our fallenness, we start looking for people that might have that quote-unquote glory or star power. But as humans, we're enamored with celebrities and influence and so forth. And most of us think, deep down, I think, that God is impressed with those kinds of people as well. That that he must bless them in a special way. Uh, And such a value system makes the rest of us feel unimportant. Like, we don't really matter, not quite like the celebrities do. Well, this was a value that's it's been all throughout history, right? And it certainly was a value in ancient Israel as well. Kings, those with wealth and power and control, were all those who were valued above everybody else. They were more important. And the thing was, people were confused about God. Because they thought God viewed people the same way. That those who are more impressive, those with star power, (laughs) are more valued and blessed by God and the rest of us don't matter so much. So I think that's why Elisha does what he does in chapter 4 of 2 Kings in who he ministers to, in how he ministers. God's prophet of the day does five miracles in four stories that we'll be looking at this morning. And he does so in the way he does to teach the people of Israel and to teach us what God's value system is really like. To see that God is not impressed with the things we get impressed with. But what God values above all else, what what gets his resources moving and his heart engaged like nothing else is a heart that simply says, God, I need you. I need you. 
So let's look how he communicates this in our passage today in 2 Kings 4. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, we confess that we so easily fall into the value systems of the world and value those who are impressive and powerful and wealthy and famous, especially in our digital age where even someone on TikTok can become famous and we somehow look up to them. And Lord, we pray that you'd use your pa- this passage today to change our thinking, to change our value system, to be in line with yours, to understand who you truly, truly value. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we want to look at God's heart and then our part. We want to look at God's heart, first of all, for the desperate. God's heart for the desperate. I want to read that first verse again of chapter 4. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Think with me for a minute about this woman. She was a woman who was at the very bottom of the social ladder. Her husband had died, and in that culture, of course, a woman had no recourse, no strength, no ability to help herself. She'd lost her husband, and no one had stepped in to help her. Her debts were overwhelming her, and now she's going to lose her two children to a creditor. Can you imagine the pain and the anguish she had to feel And the desperation, she is a victim of injustice. She's absolutely helpless in her culture to do anything to help herself as a widow. And what's worse is she would be seen in her culture, in her community, those around her as having been cursed by God. Because all these terrible things had happened to her. God must not be on her side. So imagine this deep anguish. She's lost everything. She's lost status. She's lost her economic standing. She's lost her husband, and now she's about to lose her children. Some of you know the deep anguish that she was feeling of losses you've experienced, times maybe even now where you feel desperate and helpless. Just this week I was talking to a woman who had lost her husband suddenly of a heart attack and her life was broken and she saw no reason to live. And what makes it even worse is that God in the Old Testament law, knowing man's tendency to selfishly oppress and take advantage of the poor and vulnerable, God in the Old Testament law set up lots of safeguards to make sure there would be no one ever come into this situation of this woman. God was committed to avoid permanent poverty. So there was the law, for example, of the kinsman redeemer. When your husband died, then the nearest relative had to marry you to carry on the family name and to carry on the family inheritance. There was the tithe that was given for the poor that was given to the temple, and everybody had to pay that tithe to help uplift the poor. There was... For example, the law of gleaning that said you had to leave a substantial part of your field 
unharvested so that the poor could come and do work because they didn't have land of their own and harvest that and have food for themselves and even some to sell. There was the law of the seven-year slave release. If someone did become a slave, they had to be released after seven years. There was the year of Jubilee that if someone had lost in a debt their land in the 50th year, it was returned to the family. You could not charge interest to a fellow Israelite. I could go on and on, but all of this is to say God had set up in the law a safety net to make sure no one ever got to this point, and yet it's obvious that Israel at this point is completely ignoring all of those laws. God wanted to avoid permanent poverty and did not want Israelite relationships to be based on economic power over others. But Israel's not obeying those laws. She has no recourse in society, so she cries out to the one place she knows to go, and that's to God. To God's representative in society, who is Elisha the prophet, who speaks for God, and she cries out to him, and in a beautiful way, God provides, doesn't he? Says, what do you have? Well, I have a little jar of olive oil. That's all I have in the house that's left. And so he says, go get jars from all your neighbors and as many as you can. And she keeps pouring and pouring, fills up all the jars. This is especially important because olive oil was so important to the culture of the day. It was used for lamps, cooking, medicine, cosmetics, trade and commerce in place of money. It was used for rituals. It was a sign of blessing from God. In fact, a good olive harvest was one of the clearest signs that God was blessing you in their culture. So think for a minute what it means for her to suddenly have all these jars of olive oil that she now gets to have for herself, but also to sell and take care of her family and her debts for years to come. Elisha not only provides economically for her, but because an abundant harvest was seen as a blessing from God, he actually raises her status in the community. Oh, wow, God's blessing her! (laughs) Isn't that awesome? God transforms her life and saves her children from slavery and raises her status. And in the words of my daughter-in-law who taught at the women's night out, he restores her honor to her. So what does this teach us about God's heart? Well, he has a preference for the broken, for the destitute, for the desperate. He hears their cry, and he he wants us to have his heart for them as well. He wants us to care about what they're going through, to have compassion, to care about setting up systems like he did to protect the poor so they never, ever get into this kind of situation. And he wants us to restore honor to the desperate and not look down on them, somehow blaming them for their situation. God's heart is for the desperate. But the next story, which is two miracles, it's the longest story in this passage, is about a woman in Shunem who shows God's heart for the self-satisfied The first woman's utterly desperate. She's at the bottom of the barrel in terms of social status. 
The second woman is at the top. In verse 8, it says this, One day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. The word for wealthy there is a Hebrew word that means great. It means beyond wealth. It means she was a wealthy, influential, important woman with a lot of status in the community. There's a lot behind that word. She's a powerful influence. She's at the top. And what we see is she's kind and generous and hospitable as well. She feeds him when he comes through town. Of course, they had a hospitable culture, but she feeds him and then finally says, you know, gosh, let's build a little room for him on the roof so when he comes through, he can stay here. And, you know, she looks for his needs. She's generous. She's kind. And, and when Elisha comes and says, well, gosh, what can we do for her? And has Gehazi, his servant, call her, says, you know, what can we do for her? And he says to him, say now to her, you've taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? Do you need any help? Do you need any influence at all? Or what can I do for you? And she says this. She says, I dwell among my own people. What does that answer mean? Well, essentially what it means is, I don't need your help. (laughs) I'm okay. I've got a network of family and friends in the community. I've got everything I need. She's a self-reliant person, self-satisfied. I have no needs. Thanks. I'm glad to help you, but I don't need anything from you. That's who she is. She's a great lady, a good person, we might say. (laughs) But she's got a lot going for her and just doesn't need any help from Elisha or from God. So does God care for that kind of person? He cares for the desperate, but does he care for somebody who doesn't know they need him? A good person. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's someone you know. What is God's heart towards that kind of person? Well, notice what God does. Gives her a child that she did not ask for. She's apparently worked that through that she hadn't had a son and, and um, learned contentment. But he gives her a gift that she did not ask for, a son. But notice what happens in verse 18. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head! The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. You can imagine what that had to be like for her. This gift that she hadn't asked for suddenly is taken from her in a quick desperation. She's in pain, and so the actions of a grieving mother as she deals with that, verse 21 and following. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why today? Nothing going on. She said, shalom. It's, it's fine. I just need to go. She, she doesn't tell her husband that their son has died. 
And she goes, and in desperation, it's a beautiful passage how she goes and, um, and has to get to Elisha, has to get to the man of God. And when the servant comes, she ignores him. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. When she finally gets to Elisha, she came, comes and falls and takes hold of his feet. Verse 27. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she's in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? I didn't ask for this gift. He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take my staff and go and lay it on the boy. So maybe that will bring him back to life. But Gehazi goes and nothing happens. And she refuses to leave Elisha. And finally Elisha comes. And he came to the house. He saw the child lying on his bed, verse 33. So he went in, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on mouth, eyes on eyes, his hands on hands, lays on him. And as God breathed the breath of life into Adam and breathes the breath of life into every one of us, he breathed the breath of life back into the young man. And the child sneezed seven times. I like that. <laughs> why sneeze and why sneeze? I don't know. <laughs> But it's a sign he was alive. (laughs) And he opened his eyes. And he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Powerful story. What do we learn about the heart of God towards the self-satisfied the self-reliant. Notice what God does. He gives her a gift she did not ask for so that she might learn the depth of her need for God. God gives her a gift she did not ask for to show her the depth of her need for God. That's how far the heart of God will go to pursue us. If we don't know how desperately we need him and we're getting by in life and we're doing okay and we may be religious and all that stuff, but we don't know how desperately we need him, he will give us a gift that we didn't ask for. And it may be something that in our culture you'd say, oh, that's a good gift or that's not a good gift, but In both cases, I believe it's a gift from God. Just stories from my own life. Jeannie and I were told after three children not to have any more. It would be dangerous for her to have any more children. But God gave us a fourth despite our efforts and gave us a gift we did not ask for. And that son has been a wonderful gift to us, and yet he's kept us on our knees more than maybe anything else in our lives. A gift we didn't ask for to teach us the depth of our need. In 2000, I had a heart attack. (laughs) I was laid low for a month. 
But God used it to open my eyes to ways I was depending on myself and I was driven and all of that and to break me in some ways that I'm so thankful for. God gave me a gift I didn't ask for to teach me how much I needed him. God, at one point here, Cole gave me a promotion. I was interim senior pastor, which I utterly failed at. I was overwhelmed by that. A promotion, isn't that a wonderful gift? It was a gift I didn't ask for, by the way. But it was used of God to teach me how much I needed him. This pandemic we've been experiencing... I don't know about you. It's been hard. It's a gift I didn't ask for. (laughs) But it's taught me a lot about how I'm really not in control and I desperately need him every moment. It's a gift I didn't ask for. But it's helped me understand the depth of my need for him. How about you? Think about your own life. You see, what God does with the self-satisfied, with the self-reliant, is he gives us gifts we didn't ask for to help us come to our knees and realize how much we need him. That's the extent of God's love for you. How about one more category, two more stories in this chapter, and it shows God's heart for the hungry. God's heart for the hungry. First story starts in verse 38. Elisha came to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land and the prophets are there. And so you can read it for yourself. But it, they're hungry and Elisha says, hey, you know, make a pot of stew, somebody. Well, some prophets go out and they cut some, they collect whatever they can and they throw it in the pot, but they've collected some gourds that are poisonous. And they start eating it, some of the prophets, and they cry out, there's death in the pot. How would they know that? Well, I'm assuming somebody died from eating it. And they come to Elisha and say, Elisha, what do, you, what do we do? There's death in the pot. And he takes, says, bring me flour. And he throws some flour, some meal in it. And it becomes edible. They can eat it. I think it pictures for us our spiritual hunger. We're all hungry. What's God's heart for the hungry? Those who deep down know that they're being driven by something and they, and they know there's an ache and there's an emptiness and they want more and they need more in their life, but they're dissatisfied with life. And if truth be told, every one of us is dissatisfied with life because life is not heaven and we're built for heaven and this life will never satisfy us. And so if we're honest, we're all hungry. But these particular ones are putting the wrong things in the pot. There's death in the pot and spiritual death in the pot. And what does that mean? It means frustration and emptiness and addiction and enslavement and broken lives. That's spiritual death that happens because we're trying to fill our hunger with the wrong things. And those things all (laughs) have death in the pot. We tend to fill our inward hunger with things like people's love or respect. 
by financial success, by pleasure, by sex or drugs or entertainment, numbing ourselves, by success at work, if I can just climb the ladder a little higher or material possessions or whatever, but maybe you've heard me quote before, a famous quote by G.K. Chesterton who said this, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. We all have a hunger, and, but we're all looking for the wrong, in the wrong places. That's a natural part of our humanity. And so there's death in the pot. It cannot satisfy us. And how does God respond to that kind of person who's given themselves over to the wrong things and they're experiencing the emptiness and brokenness and death that's in the pot? Maybe they're overtaken by addictions. They're enslaved by whatever. They're knocking on the door of a brothel or they're clicking on that porn site trying to fill their own hunger with the wrong things. How does God respond to that kind of person who's beginning to realize that life can't satisfy me, that it's not enough for me, that ultimately what I need is God? Well, he offers real food. He he offers himself, ultimately. He shows them where real food is to be found. Jesus put it this way. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's what we're built for. Our stomachs are (laughs) Jesus-shaped. Stomachs, that's what they're made for. Our hearts are made for him. So Jesus offers himself and offers to purify us and and purify our desires. He doesn't take away our desires. He just redirects them to the right thing, our hunger. So we'll learn to eat of him and find life in him. And then the last story, I won't take time to read it. It's a brief one, but Someone comes, there's too many people, a hundred prophets and just a little bit of bread, but he multiplies it to provide for them. And, and it just reminds you of something, right? Do you remember someone else who did that, multiplied bread? Jesus, right? Feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. You see, everything Elisha does points to Jesus. And... Elisha and and Jesus are tied. So many of the things I could go through, all of them, maybe I will next week, but there's a lot of things where Jesus clearly is saying, I am the new Elisha. I'm the one who's the representative of God. I'm the one who's here to speak for God and show you what he's like. And so he does many of the same things that Elisha does, like feed the hungry. So that's God's heart. He has a heart for the desperate. He has a heart for the self-satisfied. He has a heart for the hungry. And in fact, for everyone, right? <laughs> so what's our part? What kind of response is God looking for from us? I want to highlight just a few. Number one, he's in responding to God, what he's looking for is people who will recognize their need. Notice in each of these stories, they eventually had to recognize their need. 
I need you, and I need God. I need you to come through for me. I need you to feed me. I need you to take care of the situation. I need, to, need you to raise my son. So that's our part, to recognize our need. And I like the way Ray Stedman puts it, where he says, Jesus indicates strongly that when people think they have no need of help from God, they are in no position to be helped. There's nothing to say to them. But our Lord always puts his efforts where men and women were open to help, where they were hurting so much, they came to him for the help they need. So recognize our need. Number two, come to God with that need. It's one thing to feel the need, but to come to him and say, Lord, I need you. Like each person in the story eventually came to him in each one of the stories and said, I cry out to you, both women and the prophets. Lord, I can't fix this. I can't control this. I can't change myself. I can't change the other person. I I can't do it, Lord. I am coming to you on my knees. And then third, trust in his provision. Trust in his provision. Whatever he provides, it may be a bunch of jars of oil. (laughs) It may be resurrection power. It may be a handful of flour that makes life edible. (laughs) It may be whatever, but that's God's choice. But we can trust him to provide in his way and in his timing. Four, offer to him what little we have. I, I love that, where he comes to the destitute woman and says, what do you have in the house? I have a little jar of oil. That's all you need to bring. Offer to God what you have. And he can multiply it. He can use it. Bring a handful of flour. Bring what little bread you have, and I'll multiply it to feed many. Bring it to him as an offering to use as he pleases. But offering what little you have, God will use it for his kingdom. And then finally, Obey what he tells you to do. In each case, he told them something they had to do. Get pots from the neighbors. Well, that's dumb. Why would I get? No, she obeyed. Take up your son. (laughs) He's alive. Bring me a handful of flour. What good's that going to do? No, bring me a handful of flour. And they obeyed. Begin to share the bread you brought. And see what I do with it. Faith is active obedience to God as you believe and trust him. So in responding to God, those are the things we must do. How about in loving others in light of this passage? What is God calling us to do? Well, I think we, he calls us to be like Elisha. Which is look for those who are needy. And seek to, like I, Elisha, be God's heart to them and God's provision for them in their time of need. Know that God is present in that needy person. I like the way David Benner puts it in his book, Sacred Companion. He says this, One of the truly outstanding passages, astounding passages in the New Testament is Christ's assertion that whenever we encounter another person in need, we encounter Christ. And what we offer in response to that need, we offer to Christ. He's speaking of Matthew 25, where it says, As you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. 
Jesus teaches to this primary, now get this, Jesus teaches to this primary post-resurrection presence in the world today. His primary presence in the world today is in the person who is needy, in the least of these So let's love those people. Let's see what we can do to be Elisha to them, to bring the life of Christ to them. And then finally, what about the self-satisfied? You may have people like that in your life. You may be one of the self-satisfied people, but you probably have family and others that they just don't need God. They're doing fine. But what I find that God calls us to do is walk with them in life. Just keep walking with them because eventually... God will give them a gift they didn't ask for to teach them how much they need him. And I've walked with many people just walking through life, and eventually something happens in their life that opens the door to help them see how much they need him. So keep walking with people, be patient, pray, and when you get a chance, point them to Jesus as the bread of life. Man may be impressed by power and wealth and morality and all that, God's not. (laughs) He's not impressed. What moves the heart of God to respond with all the resources of heaven is a needy heart that comes to him in our brokenness. That he will always respond to. This summer we studied uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the very first phrase Jesus says, the very first beatitude is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the bankrupt, those who know they are needy. Because theirs, no one else's, but theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you open our eyes to a world different than what we live in, because the world we live in is tough and oppressive and and we can't make it in it. But, but your value system is so different, Lord, so help us live by your value system, which is you love to respond to those who will simply come and say, I need you, Lord. How I need you. I need your goodness. I need your life. I need your intervention and cling to you and depend on you. So thank you for that. Thank you that you saw us in our need and as now as we move to take communion together, Thank you that you loved us enough to see us in our need. And even when we hadn't admitted that need, you went to the cross for us. And you made a way for us to come into your presence and give us life. And so we praise you for that. And as we take these elements together, we thank you for meeting our need, for being the bread of life for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.